everyone. Welcome to the Charva Podcast. This is your host, Kushal Mehra. All right, my guest today is Jason Miller. Jason is an, Jason is an American communication strategist, political advisor, and the CEO of Getter. He is best known as the chief spokesperson for the Donald Trump camp presidential campaign in 2016. And obviously, he, had a, he was senior advisor in the Trump 2020 re-election campaign, too. Jason was also formerly a partner and uh, executive vice president at Jamestown Associates. Jason, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's an honor to be with you. All right, Jason. So let's get started like this. So let's start from this first question. So why did you decide to start Getter? Great question. So in 2020, I had a front row seat for what I felt was the most politically discriminating year in American history. And what I mean by that, and not even necessarily purely to say um, uh, party-based politics, but even as we saw the outbreak of COVID and we saw big tech social media oligarchs start to sentence people to what I call digital jail for daring to say that the virus came from a lab in Wuhan. Of course, then as we got later into the year, we saw big tech and big media collude to silence a very damaging story about Joe Biden's son, Hunter, regarding his business dealings in China and Ukraine. And of course, while I was still working for President Trump in early 2021, President Trump himself was deplatformed. And I knew from this series of events that something had to change. What I didn't realize until I started pushing forward and helping to develop Getter was that this wasn't just limited to the United States. This issue of the suppression of free speech is something that uh, people all around the world are facing from India to Brazil to Japan to right here in the United States and all points in between. So when we talk about suppression of free speech, always obviously the biggest incident there was Donald Trump's uh, Twitter account and basically Donald Trump getting deplatformed from pretty much everywhere, if I remember correctly. But if we look at the suppression story, right, it starts a little bit before that, right? Uh, the first big incident I would remember is now, now, whatever the views of the gentleman I'm taking the name of here might be, and I may not agree with everything he says, but you deserve to have a voice. And that was Alex Jones. I think Alex Jones was the... Uh, would you say Alex Jones was the test, the test case where uh, big tech was like, okay, what happens if we basically remove someone entirely from the internet? Would you agree with that? You know, that's a really good question. I think that uh, Alex Jones was definitely one of the test cases when the essentially uh, big tech started to cross over those lines of saying, can we get away with completely deplatforming someone from all possible mediums? But where really they crossed the ultimate red line was when they deplatformed a sitting president of the United States. And to put things in perspective for people would wonder, well, why would that matter? So much of the conversation, the debate right now, the interaction that we have with the media, the way that leaders communicate with their the citizens that they represent is through social media. Prime Minister Modi being a, a great example of someone who's mastered social media, along with President Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil. But President Trump, I think, was really at the forefront of that. On that night of January 6th, when we were trying to put out this statement from President Trump telling the people that there was going to be an orderly transition of power, we couldn't even put that statement out because all of his accounts had been sh shut down. And so Dan Scavino and myself had to put it out from our own social media accounts. So think about it. The so-called leader of the free world unable to even put out a statement saying there would be an orderly transition of power from him to Joe Biden because all of his accounts had been turned off. 
So the reason the big tech companies always give is that um, uh, President Trump, or for that matter, anybody, there is Alex Jones, and there are a litany of people out there, that they are in violation of their policy. Now, believe me, I tried to read their policy document. I mean, the community guidelines, right? That's what they call it, the community guidelines. And uh, I don't get anything out of it because the uh, one thing would be that, okay, one plus one is equal to two, so I'm not going to do this. And if I don't do this, uh, it's fine. But what I have noticed is like when it comes to social media, there is some sort of a weaponization where you can basically mass report someone and get them off social media. So I'll give you a very interesting incident. So this happened with a Indian who lives in America. So he consists, he, he, you know, he does political commentary on a particular community within India. That is a Sikh community. Now in the Sikh community, uh, there is an extremist element within them and he keeps on challenging them and he challenges their narrative. So now what happened was they basically mass reported him. And all he did was literally stated some sources and he was like, this is the source, this is the source. But just because they mass reported him and his account and was completely gone, like gone for good, his Twitter account. Mm. Now he kept on applying and they would not say no. So then what happened was there was a journalist in Canada, Terry Malevsky. Terry then wrote an article on Colette stating that look at what Twitter does. And something happened in 24 hours, his account comes back. But to bring you back to the question, now they talk about community guidelines then. then and it's quite clear that there is no consistency when it's, when it's coming to the application of community guidelines, where, whether it's the case of, like I was shocked when I found out President Trump was off, but the Taliban is on social media, on Twitter. So, so what, is President Trump now worse than the Taliban? Well, exactly. And I'll, I'll tell you something where I've even had some real issues with is the way that uh, the current Russia-Ukraine conflict is playing out and where Facebook or now Meta is saying that it's OK to call for Putin's death. Now, I'm firmly opposed to the Russian invasion in Ukraine, and I, um, I hate to see war. I hate to see any conflict where it results in the loss of life. But I don't understand how something like uh, an outlet like Facebook could say, no, we do not want President Trump, but yes, you can call for the death of a foreign leader. You might have issues with his style, with his approach, with the policies he's enacted. But to me, that seems to be fundamentally calling for someone's death. Uh, that really concerns me, uh, not just as someone in the social media space, but with the inconsistency. You reference Twitter, for example, still having the Taliban on their platform. They also have the Ayatollah. They have Hamas, the political director for Hamas, which to let people know, there's no actual politics that the political director from Hamas is doing. They're not putting up yard signs or canvassing precincts uh, in, in advance of an election. They're trying to bring about death to Israel. That's what the political director for Hamas does. So the wild inconsistency is one thing, but even to take things a step further, when you see the way that Google and YouTube are now censoring content or putting up warning labels around the issue of climate change. Now, last time I checked, climate change never had anything to do with someone's personal safety or possible government insurrection or things of that nature. So they've now shifted from at least their excuse being law-abiding approach to now world-forming around their point of view. This is the point where when you start to politically discriminate based on the worldview of the platform's owners, I think it's a slippery slope. Yeah. And another thing that bothers me is that if we are going to live in a world where 
these companies now to continue the conversation on this whole Russia thing. And I'll give you the perspective of where I come from India and where I get scared as an Indian. And you know, the Indian diaspora is huge. You know, we have so many Indians living in India, in America, in Canada, in all over Europe. Basically, we have a humongous diaspora. Now, I see big tech becoming, and I say the, this with full responsibility, a tool of the state. And when you become the tool of the state, I don't care where the state falls. Uh, it could fall on the Republican side. It could fall on the Democratic side. When a private company is going to be used to weaponize things against... So so from what I have understood, like Russian RT, whatever the YouTube channel was, it's off. You can't have any ads. You can't use the word X or Y or Z now. If you do that, you're going to be taken off. If you do this, you're going to be taken off. Uh, it's almost as if, you know... You're walking on eggshells. Now, the only difference is these are digital eggshells now. These are not literal eggshells because when I'm on the digital platform, I don't know if I speak about this, I'm going to be taken off. But here's my question to you as a CEO of Getter. Now, I'm sitting in India. I'm watching what the American state and American big tech is doing to Russia. Now, India and America have a good relation. Yeah, I concede that. India and America are allies in many ways. But then I go on social media and I see a certain section of American intelligentsia and, you know, the, the think tanks. I don't know what else to say. You know, there are these think tank people and they keep saying stuff like, oh, but if India did this, we should do this. If India did that, we should do that. Now, here's my question then. I get very perturbed that if they can do this to Russia, what would stop them? to collude with the American state and do it to India. So in that scenario, I hope you get where I'm coming from. In that scenario, how does Getter come and solve this problem? A great question. And I think what we've seen, uh, just to be blunt on this, we've seen a lot of this already happen. You can say that big tech and big media really colluded, um, I would say, along with the what we call the swamp in Washington, D.C., kind of the established powers, uh, the folks who wanted President Trump out to suppress the Hunter Biden story in 2020. And as we've seen over this last year, where they're very much, we have the White House, Jen Psaki, who's the White House spokeswoman, the White House press secretary, working with individual companies to pick winners and losers to say this person should have free speech, but this person should be kicked off a platform. You've then even seen to the north of us in Canada, Justin Trudeau go and start seizing bank accounts with people that he disagreed with on the free speech aspect. And so the, uh, the aspect of big tech becoming and big media and even in many ways, uh, big banking becoming tools of the state. Uh, I think you're exactly right now with regard to Getter. Part of the reason why we launched it is to make sure that free speech is always going to be protected and that we don't allow whether it be the big government or big tech or big media to go and silence those voices. And I think we've done a very good job with having people on the platform who have been kicked off or deplatformed or shadow banned or algorithmed out of existence on other platforms who have found 
a safe home here. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't going to be certain groups uh, that we don't say that it's not okay to join the platform. We have said that if you're part of a terrorist group, that we do not want you to be on our platform. So, whereas the Taliban and Hamas and the Ayatollah are uh, on uh, Twitter, uh, they're not on Getter. And we believe that if you are part of a group that exists only to physically harm somebody or physically kill other groups of people, that we don't want that on our platform. But we want people ideologically from all across the spectrum. We want people that range in the United States. We have people who are from the Southern Poverty Law Center, a very extreme leftist group in the United States, all the way to Alex Jones, who you referenced earlier. And we have all sorts of people in between. So we really pride ourselves in having that free speech platform. And even as we talk a little bit more specific to India, where I know Prime Minister Modi has had uh, his issues with Twitter in the past, in the way that I believe that all aspects of Hindu nationalism are under assault right now from the American big tech companies uh, who are, again, picking winners and losers, but siding with, say, Muslims against Hindus in a place where I don't think you should be picking winners and losers. If someone wants to be pr uh, proud of their uh, their Hindu faith, then they should absolutely be proud of that. And there shouldn't be any reason they can't express themselves. And this is where the problem again arises, right? Or let's take this new incident of Oliver Stone who came up with the Russia-Ukraine documentary and YouTube took it off and then Rumble took it on. And, and like I said, when you're sitting in India, everybody's watching. Just out of curiosity, doesn't Washington watch all of this? And go, I mean, you've been in Washington, right, Jason? So, I mean, I'm just curious. Like, don't they listen to people anymore? Uh, sadly, uh, I would say no. Um, and let me go and give you a, a reason why. Uh, when we were talking uh, prior to uh, launching the program and uh, we were discussing how America has changed in recent years. And so much of America is not just only about identity politics now. Uh, people who might say, well, I, I identify as being the following or I want to be a part of this group. A lot of it is even just purely into the, um, uh, the very myopic Republican versus Democrat debate. I don't think that serves either side well at all. And I think that even with President Trump now being out of office uh, for over a year now, for about a year and a quarter, for all of the talk about America first and people saying that America was retreating from the global stage, Washington is just as embroiled in a Republican versus Democrat myopic head-to-head -head battle as ever before and not paying attention to the, the bigger picture going on around the rest of the world. So, for example, I fundamentally believe that the U.S.-India relationship will be our single most important global ally in the next century of human civilization. Much of that is because of the rise of China and China's uh, stated goal of effectively taking over the world. And I think that India is such a key partner for us in the Indo-Pacific, as well as the growing India diaspora and the Indian-American community in the U.S., that that's a relationship that we should be treating more special and more valuable than arguably any other relationship that the U.S. has. But so many of the lawmakers are so focused on fighting each other and who can win in the next election. They've lost sight of the big picture. So let's talk about the big picture then. Um, so if I was to say, what, what worries me again is from a purely technical or strategic point of view too, that let's say you have a platform now. I remember it was during President Trump's time. I forgot. Was it Parler that they took him off? Basically, Amazon owns most of the servers, right? Or the domain, uh, they control 
even if you have a domain name and if you want to host a website, so Amazon controls pretty much it. And then Parler was taken off even from those platforms or those 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 uh, you know places. Now, in such a scenario, has Getter learned from the Parler experience, and have you kind of uh, you know protected yourself from that kind of a scenario where, let's say, I mean, I don't know how to say, it, if shit hits the roof. <laughs> no, that's uh, uh, you're exactly right there. So Parler, to let people know on this, the biggest mistake that Parler made wasn't so much that they had a, a faulty moderation system for monitoring their content. They had effectively no moderation system. So what that means is they relied purely on community guidance, community uh, moderators to determine what should be allowed on the platform or not. The problem is that when you scale, when you start growing so big so fast that the community is not then able to keep up with the moderation demands. And obviously Parler got swept into January 6th, excuse me, all of the, the chaos that ensued around that date and they were therefore deplatformed. So we've learned two things. One, that we need to have a proactive and robust moderation platform to make sure that people can express themselves uh, politically, to make sure that their political viewpoint is never going to be silenced or suppressed, but also make sure that illegal content is kept off, off the website, whether those be physical threats or doxing the people's information or, say, inappropriate pictures of children um, or even outright terrorist behavior such as beheading videos. We make sure that that is not on our platform, that we, we use both AI and human moderators to make sure that's not, on, not on there. But then we also have a series of redundancies and backups, uh, including both a private public cloud uh, backup system. So even if, say, for example, one vendor didn't want to work with us anymore, we'd have an immediate backup and we'd only be offline for a couple of minutes before the essentially the, the backup generator kicked in. The only place that will tell you where there's no such thing as a redundancy is with the Apple iOS store. If you are kicked off of the Apple store because it's a, what they call a closed system, Apple gets to decide every single app that's on their platform. There is no workaround on that. Whereas if you have, say, a Samsung Galaxy or a Google Android, then you can go right to a website and download the app for your phone. That's an open system. So the one place where there is no such thing as a redundancy is with the Apple iOS store. But... We think that we've been good partners with having a proactive and robust moderation platform that does not discriminate politically, that actually defends your right to have your free speech, but we make sure we keep illegal activity off of the site. We think we found the sweet spot, so to speak, of the bat. We're never going to make everybody happy all of the time, but we think that we've made a, a much more fair, much more open, much more free system than any other platform out there. So another thing... Um... Jason, that a lot of times when I have discussions on tech censorship or tech platforms is the issue of network externalities, right? So they, they would always come up. If I say, oh, we should try a new platform. I'm just trying to play devil's advocate here. They would say, listen, Kushal, um, Twitter is there in X number of countries. Facebook is there in X number of countries. And the reason social media works is because of the you know, network externalities and you know, a person in India can interact with a person in America. I mean, Let's get real. I mean, even I'm going to be posting uh, a recording of this video on YouTube. So I am very much aware of what I'm going to be doing. But the point is that how does Getter in that case deal with this issue? Because the reason people are on, let's say, Twitter or Facebook is it's just that everybody's out there. So if you are someone who's trying to bring a 
build a brand or trying to get some information or trying to get into a, a subject. It's just easier. So you see what I'm trying to say? So how does Getter fi fix that problem of network externalities then? Yeah, uh, great question, by the way. So the two goals that I set out for us when we launched the platform in July of 2021 was that we needed to make sure that the user experience, the quality of the tech was just as good, if not better, of anything that big tech was putting out there. You can get people to come visit your platform or your site based off an ideological push. Maybe they're frustrated with big tech or they're mad about President Trump uh, being kicked off or uh, uh, Prime Minister Modi uh, having to butt heads with social media uh, titans every now and then. But if you want them to stay there, you have to make social media fun. You have to make sure that people can connect with their friends and family. They need to make sure that they can get breaking news updates. So we put a big premium uh, on making sure that the tech was good and that we started inviting people from, say, news backgrounds and figuring out different clusters and groups to get on board so there was that growing sense of community. The other thing that I said was that we wanted this to be an international platform, that I was going to make the effort as the CEO to get out there and make sure the platform was available in a number of languages. They were going to start bringing on strategic partners and news outlets to provide news content in different languages. So right now, the U.S. is only about 50% of our overall support base, of our 5 million people. The other 2.5 million is around the rest of the world, where the U.K., France, and Germany are uh, right there. But actually, Brazil and South America is our second largest market in the world. Our three expansion markets for Q1 and Q2 of this year are Japan, Colombia and India, where I'll be making my first visit to India in just two weeks. And so we've really put our money where our mouth is and make an effort to expand globally because I didn't want this to become an American echo chamber. Yes, we were going to have a lot of users from the U.S. and I work every day to add more, but this has to be a global platform where not only do we have the translate feature with all of our posts that are on online, if you go on the, your getter timeline, but we're soon going to be having real-time live streaming translation. So say if people watch a speech from Prime Minister Modi, they'll have that down at the bottom translated into upwards of a dozen languages in real time. That, that, that sounds really good because I think in, at least in a country like India, one of the biggest ways social media outreach can work. Uh, in fact, people don't realize Twitter is very niche in India. And the, the biggest reason for that is it's only English and it's not working on uh, getting those tools in. In fact, Facebook is far, far, far more, you know, uh, in, in terms of outreach, Facebook. And, and the biggest outreach, I think, in India would be WhatsApp, if I was to be very honest with you. WhatsApp is just everywhere. It's just you go to rural India, you'll find a person using WhatsApp, obviously, because Reliance and uh, Geo getting the Internet availability to the last common denominator in India. And uh, that led to it. But now let's segue into this. I, I really was interested in talking about this. So how was it to work with President Trump? <laughs> I always describe it as riding a roller coaster with no seatbelt. Uh, <laughs> you never know what every day is going to, uh, to bring to um, uh, channel my inner Forrest Gump and mix all of my metaphors. You could say that every day is like a box of chocolates. Uh, but I will tell you that I learned so much for working with President Trump. Um, and in particular, how to do things different. The way that his, just the way that his mind works is always, okay, if this is the way that everybody has always done it, 
why aren't we trying to do it a different way? Why do these so-called geniuses keep doing the same thing over and over, but nothing improves, whether it be on the style of communication, whether it be with regard to certain domestic or international policies, uh, may there be just the way that he communicates with people going through social media as opposed to kowtowing to the media elites. And so I really uh, learned kind of a description in American politics, which is flying upside down. Uh, how to fly upside down, be able to adapt. And I think what made it me su survive <laughs> as long as I did in President Trump world, which I shouldn't say that in the, the past tense, because I still remain a very close ally of President Trump. In fact, I'll be with him uh, coming up on Monday um, down in Florida. But I think what helped me survive is that I knew my job was never to go and try to put words in his mouth. My job was to figure out what message he was trying to communicate and then figure out how to help him package that and deliver it to as many people as possible, how to amplify the message or how to even make it more salient or more effective. And I think that's one of the big misnomers with President Trump. I think a lot of people uh, their understanding is that he doesn't listen to anybody, doesn't take advice. I'd say quite the opposite. He actually demands that if you're in his presence, uh, that you have an opinion, that you've thought through things. If you're what we call a wallflower, someone who just sits in the back of the room against the wall and doesn't say anything, uh, he'll tell you to get lost because he only wants people who have an opinion. It could be on a small matter, could be on a big matter, but he wants you to have thought through and demonstrate how we could be most effective in getting things done. So uh, there were definitely, uh, definitely some really fun days, definitely some tough days when I was working for the president. But the one thing I knew is that he always had my back, which I always appreciated. Well, that's good to hear. Uh, I have to say he, uh, as someone who used to sit in India, his Twitter handle was, <laughs> let's just say it was, it was entertaining. Uh, it, it was, it was, it was a lot of fun. I mean, uh, and you know, I, the one thing I miss the most is, um, what was that tweet he made about, was it Greenland? And he would just put a Trump tower over there. I'm not going to do this. That was, that was good. <laughs> no, that, so that was good. Although I will tell you that my, my wife, I think still has nightmares because I'd have the Twitter alert set for President Trump when he would tweet. And there'd be some of those mornings where it would get bing, bing, bing. And I look over at the clock and it's 525 in the morning. I'm like, uh-oh, it's going to be a long day. Uh, so sometimes that was my alarm clock to get up and, uh, and get going when he was, he was tweeting in the morning. Um, but the one thing that was fun was in the first campaign, I'd call him every day at 6.30 in the morning. Uh, when he was president, I'd call him every day at 7.30. We'd walk through the day. We'd talk through the, the key news stories, what his schedule looked like for the day, what we we're going to go and, and take on. And it's really where I got a sense to know him, not just to say the leader, but as a person, uh, as far as his styles, what he was really trying to do uh, for the country and for the rest of the world. And so I think being able to spend that time with him gave me a, a deeper understanding of really where he's coming from. And uh, that's where I, I really appreciate some of these, whether it be President Trump or President Bolsonaro or Prime Minister Modi, uh, some of these larger than life leaders who've really figured out how to use social media to talk directly to people. Uh, I have a great deal of appreciation for yeah, and, you know, to take this forward, so the one thing that stood out to me when I used to listen or, you know, watch President Trump, you don't have to agree with the person, but you just you can just observe and sit there. Um, he was unabashedly American, and he was proud about it, right? Uh, but now I contrast that with what's happening in American society in general. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, because... I don't live there, but I try to follow American politics as much as I can because uh, 
I don't know how to say this. Whether people like it or not, America is like pretty much the most important country in the world in multiple ways for multiple reasons. Now, now whatever happens in America does tend to have a disproportionate effect on other other areas because of the sheer economic powerhouse that mm-hmm. America is and the military powerhouse that America is now. So if I, what happened in America that you know being a proud American. Now, when I say proud American, I don't mean some sort of jingoistic thing where you go around shouting, I love America everywhere. It's just that I'm proud to be an American. I think my country is pretty good. Uh, do you sense that it's becoming a bad thing there that you can't really? Like, I'll tell you something. I was speaking with someone in Canada and they said that if you are, let's say, somebody who's Caucasian and you carry the Canadian flag, people are going to look at you. And I was like, why? He's like, it's okay if you're, like, if I was to carry the Canadian flag, they don't say that to me, but is America also going in the same direction that you can't be a proud American anymore? Yeah, and quite frankly, I'd say that it extends even a lot further than that. I mean, if you are someone in the United States who has an American flag uh, bumper sticker, for example, or American flag hanging off the side of your truck, people assume that you are a Trump supporter and that you are of the right of center ideologically. Same thing in Brazil. If you're someone who uh, proudly displays the Brazilian flag, they assume that you're a Bolsonaro supporter and someone who's more right of center, politically speaking. I think that there's, I think a lot of countries, including the United States, have really lost their way and put this notion of a, a global order or that we all have to somehow just um, uh, forget uh, any pride from our, our native country and just think about the world only. And what I've found is in a lot of ways that exacerbates existing problems. Uh, you take a look at the way that then people start to implement uh, energy policies based off of uh, kind of this unitarian philosophy. Well, guess what? A lot of people who live in the suburbs uh, can't afford to go and buy a brand new electric vehicle. Uh, they just can't. If you're having trouble paying what in the United States is now six American or even seven American dollars per gallon of gasoline, well, you certainly don't have 50 or 60 or 70,000 to go spend on a brand new electric car. And so I think that we saw this with the yellow vest protests in France a couple of years ago. We've seen this with governments all around the world. But I do think that uh, when you start to tell people that they can't be proud of where they're from or what their religious beliefs are, when you start to compress and then ultimately suppress so many of these free speech rights, it just leads to people becoming more angry and more divided. Yeah, I mean, I don't get it. I, I, I saw a university plaque. Somebody had sent it to me. I forgot the name of the university. I really apologize about that. But it said, rationality is white supremacism. I was like, okay. I did not know that. When did that happen? I did not know. I did not get the memo. And now I I don't like to say everything is wokeism because I don't like to sound very unscholarly. At least, you know, I should use my words very properly, at least because I'm I'm a philosophy guy. So I should be very careful when I use. But so what is this? American political situation right now with with President Biden. Uh, And I'll be very open as far as India is concerned. India has had good relations with America, irrespective of who's in power. Let let me be very clear, because uh, when it comes to international relations or foreign policy, I think the state directive 
is pretty much consistent whether it, and it's not that you know tomorrow congress is in power or bjp is in power the indian foreign policy would it will deviate I, I, i'm not saying that the biden foreign policy and the trump foreign policy is the same so maybe my question to you is that how how would let's say if president uh, i don't know if president trump is going to fight again so i can i can't say that i'm i'm not going to look into a crystal ball and say whether he's going to do it or not but let's say if you know president trump comes back again so from an indian perspective where would you see significant changes coming in indo american relations for that matter great question so i i think part of the the issue right now just uh, regardless of which party it is uh, i think that there needs a uh, premium needs to be put on the us india relationship for the simple fact that china is so aggressively on the move and you literally share a border with china so uh, yeah. you, you know more so i mean you're you're surrounded by conflicts on all sides whether it be china whether it be um uh the constant nonsense that you put up with from pakistan um so you're right in essentially the one of the most important regions in the entire world uh, but i do think that when it comes to uh the US India relationship i think the trade negotiations i think need to happen in a way um that really benefit both countries uh i think we need to make sure that that economic union is strong i think we also want to make sure that the military alliance is strong as well obviously understanding that india is an independent voice and you've long uh declared that you're going to have relationships with other powers and other uh countries as well but i do think that us india relationship is absolutely paramount quite frankly i don't think it's getting enough attention from either party uh at the moment and that's something that i very much use my platform my soapbox so to speak to try to communicate and it's part of the reason even while I'll be in India in 2 weeks uh not just to talk about getter but to continue to help foster and develop that US India relationship because i think that it is so important so let's let's build on that now so you did say india when it comes to foreign policy historically has had a very very unique way of looking at the world uh I don't know how to say it. Let's be very clear. Even in the current Russia-Ukraine crisis, while India has been actively sending humanitarian aid to Ukraine, it clearly abstained from the vote. I mean, India was very clear: we're not going to. And India has had a historical relationship with Russia too. Now, in in a scenario like that, um, again, sitting in India, when you see uh, American influencers uh, with blue ticks on Twitter, uh, working in think tanks or working in serious publications. start saying things like india is doing this we should punish india how does that help now i understand you're going to tell me kushal it's not like that the governments behave differently and you know experts they they do what they are supposed to do but the point is when somebody sitting in india and they observe politics they speak with people it creates jitters it creates jitters inside the indian uh socio political landscape where they see okay so on one hand they say we want india to be a reliable partner but is it really an equal relationship see uh it's not like so this is where i like to introduce a concept where i say some people think that we need to tolerate india and what india wants is mutual respect right so we respect you and you'll respect us and in some scenarios we may not agree with you and you may not agree with us but we have a larger bond and that's maybe what india is coming from but sometimes what what happens is when when maybe india looks at american commentary it seems as if oh we're tolerating you and you should be very thankful to us that we're letting you sit at the table so how do we solve that or do you think i'm completely off 
another good question. I think part of it is we need to put social media. Of course, I'm a CEO of a social media company, so we need <laughs> we need to put social media in its proper place when it comes to international relations. So in Twitter, what I found this is part of the reason also why I launched Getter. It was because everything in Twitter came about what we call dunking on people or coming up with the, the quick hits or the, the flamboyant statement that then gets uh, retweets or, or likes uh, and people get um, their uh, essentially their uh, feeling of self-worth based on how many retweets and posts that they have. But there aren't really many discussions that I've found on Twitter. I think with Getter, what we've been able to do, both with building partners uh, in India, having a lot of people who've joined the platform, my being able to uh, have conversations with journalists and, um, and uh, pundits such as yourself, is actually dive a little bit deeper into these and say, okay, let's go through the complexities of the relationship as opposed to just the quick statement saying uh, U.S. good, India bad, or vice versa, uh, which I don't think really uh, helps it at all. Uh, I think that the, you know, specific to the the U.S.-India relationship, uh, I think that we have to be cognizant of what the real uh, issue at hand is here. Is the real issue at hand whether or not India buys a couple of missile defense systems, um, for example, from Russia? No. The real issue at hand is China. And over this next century, the fact that China effectively uh, wants to, uh, for lack of a better term, enslave the U.S. and enslave India and for there to be in charge and there to be the global capital powerhouse and the global military powerhouse. That's the real challenge that's facing both of our countries and the rest of the world over the next century. So I think sometimes we major in the minors. Uh, we focus on things that are too small and don't fundamentally alter uh, a partnership or a relationship. And we need to stay focused on what that common objective is, which India is the largest democracy in the world. U.S. obviously has the biggest economic democracy that's in the world, and we should be working very well together. But do you think then the Biden administration has really succeeded in that task uh, on building this relationship vis-a-vis -vis the China conundrum? No, not at all. And I think that uh, Biden is shown even going back to the disastrous withdrawal of Afghanistan. And when I say that, I was very much in support of removing the U.S. from Afghanistan. But, you know, the first thing that you do is you remove all of your key people, uh, all of your your civilians, uh, not just the Americans, but even the people from Afghanistan who worked with you, who'd be put in harm's way. If the Taliban were in charge. That's what you do first. Second, you make sure that you then get out all of your uh, your key equipment, make sure that you're leaving nothing behind. And then only then do you actually go to remove your military. But the entire time you're sending a message to the Taliban. Uh, if you try to mess with us as we're withdrawing, we're going to drop some really big bombs on your head. There has to be that deterrent that was put forward. When I saw Joe Biden completely bungle that, I knew that foreign policy across the board, whether it's Afghanistan, whether it's India, whether it's China, whether it's Russia, whether it's anywhere else, uh, was going to be in a bad place for the rest of his presidency because he just, uh, I I'm not sure who's directing him. I'm not sure what happened to the Joe Biden who prided himself on being a foreign policy expert in the first five decades of his career, but all that seems to be gone now. And I, I don't understand who's in charge or what the key directive is. Here's the thing. When there's a weak America or a weak American presidency, there's a weak global democracy. There's a weakness about people knowing that our allies are going to protect it and our values and our freedoms are going to be protected. That's why it's so key to have a strong American presidency to convey that message. And right now, I don't think we're doing it as a country. Yeah, and, and uh, 
I mean, I sometimes to even the annoyance of my own followers, I've been I'm actually very vocally Pax Americana in that sense. Uh, if I was to use that word, I've never hidden that. But to be very honest, I've been uh, I've been very disappointed by the way America has behaved in the whole Russia-Ukraine crisis, especially from the the weaponization of companies. That 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 has really scared a lot of people. I can assure you that in India, a lot of people are worried about it. They're like. So if we go on their bad side, they're going to do the same thing to us. Is, 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 that's the message. And I don't know how America is going to wiggle around that. I think the Biden administration is not communicating. And even if they are behind the scenes, it doesn't matter because the larger population needs to be told in, in both the countries. And, and the way the commentary is coming from American think tanks, especially left-leaning think tanks in America, is it's nearly not helping the cause, if I was to say that. But... One last question to you, uh, Jason, and 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 this is something that is very very important to me personally. Um, I'm sure you must be aware of Tristan Harris's work, right? Uh, how uh, there was uh, there was this famous documentary too on Netflix where they talk about social media and the possible issues related to social media. Now, Jonathan Haidt also has done a lot of work on how Instagram, especially when it comes to young teenage girls, has some devastating effects on them uh now i know the data is a little bit raw right now but we do see which is something that breaks my heart actually that we we see a spike in suicide rates amongst young girls especially now as a ceo of a social media company are you concerned about this because i don't know how to say this because the company is based on the design that people are going to be coming on there but there is this fundamental moral conundrum there that while we do want people to use social media, we also at the same time don't want them to be mentally disturbed. I don't know how to say it. Now, somebody could come back like, you know, um, and tell me, look, we're not forcing people to use it. And I, and I take, at, at that point is taken. But at the end of the day, everybody is looking to grab attention, right? It's all about eyeballs. Even a baseball game, if I was to use the American example, or a NBA game, like a basketball game. It's about grabbing eyeballs. So why are social media companies called to be uniquely, you know, problematic in that sense? Everybody wants eyeballs, right? I mean, a baseball game, just like a cricket game, goes on forever. So why don't you call them out? But my concern still stems from a, a place of genuine curiosity. And I would not say fear, but uh, but just uh, alarmism. So has Getter considered it? Uh, and have you guys studied the research? And so what is Getter trying to do for that? If you think it's not an issue, it's fine. But I think it's my moral responsibility to ask you this question. No, and I think this is important. I think what's also important for your viewers to know is that I'm the father of a 13-year-old daughter. And so I'm seeing in real time what she hears um, from her classmates at school. She's in a very impressionable age right now where this is the first year where she's worried about what clothes she wears or does she straighten her hair, how she looks, is she's in that stage of, of her uh, growing up, of her adolescence. And so I see also the impact on social media. And that's something that uh, we're very strict with what she's allowed to be on and what she's not allowed to be on. Uh, for example, she's not allowed to have a public account where different people can chime in. We're very strict about who she can call, who she can't call, things like that. But I was quite frankly disgusted as the father of a 13-year-old when I saw the news that Instagram and Facebook were targeting these preteen girls 
to essentially become addicted to their platforms, which is the only way to put it. Now, my prior background, as you noted at the beginning, was in advertising, was in marketing. And everybody knows that people start to develop their brand uh, behaviors uh, as soon as that preteen phase uh, between, say, 11 to 13. Uh, for example, when I was a kid, Michael Jordan told us to wear Air Jordan basketball shoes. So guess what I wear today? Air Jordan basketball shoes. Charles Barkley said, use right guard deodorant because anything else would be malodorous. So what, right, uh, <laughs> what deodorant do I use? Right guard, of course. So people start to develop these brand affinities. And we believe fundamentally at Getter that that 11, 12, 13 is too young to be on uh, social media, uh, to be in, in a microblogging type context of a public facing social media. And so we've said that for our platform, you have to be 16 and up. I initially had even said 18, but uh, as the team came back and said, if you're at the age of 16, you're allowed to drive in the United States. Uh, you're allowed to vote in countries such as Argentina and Austria and Brazil. So we've set the age limit of 16 of a, even being on the platform. But we also take very seriously the doxing, the dumping of personal information or physical threats or harassment that happen on the platform. Now, it's not to say that everyone's going to be uh, all sunshine and puppies and in soft pillows. Uh, if you say something dumb on Getter, people are probably going to tell you that you said something dumb. But there's a big difference between that and harassing kids. And I think really that kids are off limits when it comes to that. And there'll never be any targeting or any manipulation like that of people who are, say, preteens or uh, very early teenagers. I, I think, quite frankly, that's disgusting. And you do have to think about what the broader community is going to look like. And if I can't be proud of myself or what kind of company I'm leading, uh, the value set that we're putting forward for our next generation of people, then I'd be doing not just get her a disservice, but I think social media and even my country a disservice. Fair enough, Jason. Um, all right. So, okay. So I guess we can wrap up now, but before we wrap up, so if, if, so if, uh, so if an Indian was to ask uh, Jason Miller, Hey Jason, how do I get, and open my account on Twitter. So what is the person supposed to do that? Absolutely. So what I would say is uh, Getter is the all-in-one free speech platform. You can go to getter.com, G-E-T-T-R.com. And if you're wondering what Getter is, it's just a shortened version of Get Together. It's about building community. You can go to Getter, G-E-T-T-R, on the Apple Store, or as most of our users in India are on either Samsung Galaxies or on Google Androids, G-E-T-T-R, the Google Play Store. Very easy to sign up. A couple of really cool features, reasons why. Uh, in addition from being a free speech platform, what I think you're going to like, longer posts, up to 777 characters, longer videos, up to three minutes. Not When you sign up your account, you can actually import all of your tweets so your timeline comes with you. They're still there on your Twitter account if you still have them. But you can import all of your previous commentary so it's there. And we just launched this yesterday, but cross-posting to where now if you post on Getter, It'll also show up on Twitter. If you're not sure about leaving behind followers or viewers or things of that nature, we now have live streaming uh, uh, where people are able to go and broadcast their shows out to the rest of the world. In a few weeks, we're going to have live translations of the live streaming. So someone from Germany or France or Japan or anywhere in the world could hear someone speaking in Hindi and see the real-time uh 
text translation down at the bottom. Uh, we just launched Vision, our short video component, which is our challenger to TikTok and the Instagram Reels. And then coming up this summer, Getter Pay, which will be a payment platform system similar to an Apple Pay or an Alipay. Here's the cool thing. We're going to have a two-coin crypto ecosystem with a stable coin and a fluctuating coin, bringing cryptocurrency and blockchain to people all around the world. But again, Getter is the all-in-one free speech platform. Come check us out on the Apple or Google store, and I think you're going to be excited by what you see. Awesome, Jason. Um, uh, uh, this sounds like a lot of fun. It was an absolute pleasure talking to you, and I wish you and everybody at Getter the, the very best, and I thank you for coming and having a chat with me. Thank you so much, and I look forward to meeting you in person, hopefully even on my upcoming trip to India. It'll be my first uh, visit to the country, and I'm, I'm so excited to come and see so many new people. Looking forward to that. All right, guys, we'll wrap today's discussion up. Uh, so when you go and watch this video, or you, if you're listening to the audio version, if you go to the description of the podcast, I will leave the link to get it in the description itself, so you can go right there and access it. Also... If you like the podcast, please subscribe to the channel, like the video, leave your comments, and you can support it on Patreon or YouTube or UPI, and you can buy the merch too. I'll see you guys next time. Until then, take care. Bye-bye.